ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast, where the Tennessee Stud takes you back from wrestling's history to talk about his family, his career, as well as the history of professional wrestling. Once again, obviously, we are joined by the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller, and I'm really excited this week. We're picking up right where we left off from last week. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm excited about it, too. Uh, we've, we're in Florida. Uh, I've, I've changed territories. Uh, I've now moved out of Georgia. I've been I've been uh, lucky enough to get into Florida. And uh, just, well, you know, what we're doing here each week, it seems like, uh, Brian, and I really like it. The concept is is for the wrestling fan, you know, I'm trying to break things down to like the what the first month's like, the second month is like. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have this chart of all my matches, which is really an amazing thing. And I can see who I wrestled and the cities that I wrestled in. I can calculate the miles. And, uh, you know, so I, this is a great history lesson for wrestling fans that wonder what it was like to be a wrestler back in those days and how much traveling that you did and how you traveled and who you rode with and all those things. So I'm really pleased that uh, we're getting into a part of my life and my career in which things are beginning to happen. And um, we I got some good news, I think, at the end of this one about next week. I'm really already thinking ahead toward next week's. And uh, I just want to cover this really well today. This is the second month, basically, of my career in the state of Florida. It's 1970. I'm a young guy at... Uh, I think I'm 22 years old at that time and just a young kid, basically. And amongst a great group of young wrestlers, maybe the one of the greatest groups of young wrestlers of all time is in this territory in 1970. Young guys like me that are trying to make a name for themselves and trying to learn their craft and trying to learn how to how to deal with their sport. Uh, it's a great time to be a wrestler. Uh, wrestling is on fire around the world. NWA is just cranked. It has some of the best wrestling territories that were ever created. And it is the organization that makes the world wrestling go. And, uh, so we're right in a great time frame, and, uh, I'm just uh, looking forward to breaking it down again today. 
That's one thing we've done each and every week, break it down. And another thing we've done each and every week is forget to name a winner to the question each and every week. But we're going to rectify that right here at the top of the show. And I could say here at the beginning, we intend to announce another winner at the end. You had two questions last week. What question did the Tennessee stud pick as his winner? I I, I, I took the, the Jeff Bowdrin. Uh, and I think he's, he's one of... Uh, Arcadian Vanguard's people. Yeah, you know? people are going to think this was a setup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and and but I was really pleased to see this because, it, you know, it it kind of makes me feel good that in a way I am kind of a wrestling historian, and and Jeff had a really good question, and his question was, I think, is basically about uh, uh, why Joe LaDuke never got a, a big time run with Bruno or Backlund back in the WWF days which was a great question. And uh, I have a lot of respect for Joe LaDuke. Uh, what a great guy he was and just a phenomenal talent in the ring. And Jeff, that was a great question. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to be, uh, I'm affiliated with Jeff in some respects here through Arcadian Vanguard. And I'm really proud of that. And uh, Jeff, uh, you, you, you're going to be the winner from last week's questions. He's always wanted to be a winner, and here it is on the Studcast. Jeff Bowdrin, you are a winner. But now let's go back. We're now in your second month in the business in Florida. Yes, uh, and it's 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 a grind. I mean, I, I'm really I'm really doing what all wrestlers did back in those days. I'm spending uh, half my life in a car. It seems like. And uh, occasionally you're, you're in a plane. Uh, in my case, it's going to be private planes, and it's going to be for basically one shot uh, every other week. A couple of times I'm going to go during this month to the Bahamas. And uh, in my recent Super Stud cast, I really broke down the Bahamas. I'm going to be getting to that in these stud casts very soon. And so... I, we're we're really traveling and we're we're working with a lot of different people, and and because I have this list of matches, it's just made it great for me uh, to be able to look at each month and break them down. And I've broken down this month, my second month, as to the who were the new opponents, who were guys that I wrestled in the second month that I had never wrestled in my career. And there's a pretty decent list of them here. And we'll take them a little one at a time. Uh, and I'm going to be quite honest with you, uh, <clears throat> Brian. I, I don't really remember a whole lot of these guys. Some of them, I don't have much memory of what they were like and how they worked or that type of thing. But there's three guys here that we're going to look at specifically as we go through this. But new opponents in my second month in Florida – uh, Frank Martinez. Frank Martinez was an old timer. Uh, even at that day and time, he'd been around quite a while and he was really good at getting young guys off the ground properly. There were uh, quite a few guys in Florida at that time that were veterans that really knew how to take a youngster out there in the ring and, and have a great match. Uh, that's so important in your early days as a wrestler. You don't go out there and have a great match if you don't have a great leader. And there were a lot of good leaders in this in that 
in the Florida Territory back in the 70s. And Frank Martinez is one of those guys, a very good old-time veteran that could make you look good when you weren't good. Uh, Frank Dubois. I really don't remember much about Frank Dubois. Uh, Nick Adams. Now, this could be the Nick Adams that trains a bear. I'm not sure about that, but that name rings a bell because Nick Adams is a guy that trains another wrestling bear, and I end up wrestling his bear in in Marstown, Tennessee, in probably 1975, Nick Adams' bear. Uh, I don't think Nick Adams was ter- certainly as tough as a bear, you know, but uh, he he's a you know he he's he's got it. He's going to have a place in history because he's going to train a wrestling bear, and uh, the fact that he was a wrestler, I think, just a wrestler only at that point, pretty amazing to me. Tom Bradley, I don't remember Tom Bradley, a uh, name that I do not remember. Uh, Crusher Carlson wrestled as the Super Inferno. Now, the Infernos were there as a team in that time. That's Rocky Smith and his brother, Curtis Smith. They're Tennessee guys. Uh, they are managed by J.C. Dykes, the Super Inferno. It used to be they would have six-man tags, and they would add this guy to that mix. Now, he's, he's obviously a pretty decent worker, and I don't really remember a lot about him. But if he's working with those two guys, he's he's got some he's got some class and he has some ability about him. Uh, don't remember those particular matches. I'm pretty sure that I probably won most all of those matches. Now we've got three guys here. I want to kind of break down and talk about in 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 in, in, a, in a more complete form. Uh, one of those guys is Tarzan Tyler. Tarzan Tyler is a big, huge guy. He's about 6'3". He weighs 300 pounds, probably, uh, between 290 and 320, maybe. He's a monster of a guy. Uh, He is from Montreal. There's a lot of talent, for some reason, out of Canada, and I think it's because it's Florida, and they want to get out of that cold weather and they try to get down there and spend their winter times in Florida. And then we're talking about winter time here, and it's 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 pretty darn nasty up there where he's from, uh, Montreal, Canada. Uh, so he's down there to spend the winter. Uh, not an uncommon practice there. As time goes by, in 1973, as an example, a couple of years down the road, I'm going to end up wrestling. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens, who come out of Vern Gagne's territory, the AWA up there, and he they are going to stay there for three months. I'm going to end up in the ring with those two tremendous workers so many, many times and learn so much from those guys. And so Tarzan Tyler is another one of those guys that's very similar. His name, actual Tarzan Tyler's actual name was Camille Tourville. Uh Pretty uh, strange and different type of name. He started wrestling in the 50s, and uh, he spent a lot of time working in the South. I mean, he actually held a lot of titles in Georgia, and he held a lot of titles across the South. Uh, He even booked some in Florida in the 1960s. 
I don't don't know much about that because I was young, not in wrestling at all, just in high school in those 60s or junior high, and I don't know what his ability was as a booker. But I do know he had great ability in the ring. He was a big, impressive guy, and he... He was he was pretty a pleasure to work with. He was an easy guy to work with, and he was a good leader out there in the ring. And probably in those days, I'm young. Uh, I doubt that I I went over in any matches with Tarzan Tyler. He was a he was a pretty big star. But I got a great opportunity here to wrestle as a young guy with a big time star, and that's what makes you get better fast. Uh, and you've got to have those matches with guys that are that are great leaders and that are great in the ring, and they can teach you so much in every single match you have with them. It's not long until you start to become a great worker yourself. And I had a great opportunity to be used in Florida at that point. Uh, I was sent to like what would be called the B-grade towns, uh, that would have been uh, Fort Myers and uh, O'Galley and uh, some of these smaller cities in which I got to work on top with big-name guys where if I had been in Tampa on a Tuesday night, I would have been first or second match. Instead, I'm on top against a guy like Tarzan Tyler. So I learned a whole lot from him. I, I didn't realize this, but Tarzan Tyler broke his back in 1973 in a match with Andre the Giant. Now, that, you know, that's this, yeah, I can't fathom how that happens, but it does happen in, in the, in the sport of wrestling and people say, well, you know, it's all this and it's all that it, it, it people get hurt and it's, it's a, it's a fact of life in, in the wrestling business and to break your back is a tremendous injury, but it basically kills his career at that point. He doesn't have then the opportunity to to get back in that ring and be able to do what he done. He starts managing a lot uh, in later in the after 73. Uh, I don't know that he ever gets back in the ring after he breaks his back in the match with Andre. And, and then he, he gets killed in an auto accident on Christmas Eve in 1985. Uh, auto accidents are the end of so many wrestlers. And I remember when Rob and I started we used to ride down the road early on and say, what do you think the chances are that we'll spend 20 years in this profession and not get killed in a car? Uh, and, it, you know, I, I didn't think our chances were, were that good that we wouldn't, you know. So, so it just it happened to poor Tarzan Tyler, uh, Christmas Eve, 1985. Uh, that's one of the new people that I wrestled during this second month. Uh, another one is a, a young guy, uh, like I am at this point, named Ken Lusk. Now, Ken Lusk uh, started in Florida in 1970, just about the same time I started there. Uh, he's going to change his name when he leaves Florida. He's going to become Ken Mantell. Uh, he's a good worker. This kid is really good. He has an unusual look. Uh, he's got a good wrestling background. Uh, he's going places. And when he leaves there in 1975, he's going to beat some great people in the, in his future. He's going to defeat Danny Hodge for the world junior heavyweight title. 
He's going to end Hodge's final reign as champion. Hodge will never win the World Junior Heavyweight Championship after he loses to Ken Mantell. So Ken is becoming a great worker. After he leaves Florida, he goes, uh, works out there in Oklahoma. He works for Leroy McGirt. He actually starts doing some booking. I remember hearing stories about him because we were friends. We were young guys. Uh, I felt like I was going to go places in the sport, and uh, and so did Ken. And Ken goes out there, gets himself a job booking for Leroy, uh, and he keeps that probably keeps that job pretty much until Watts is going to show back up there in the late seventies and and start to become the the man out there in Oklahoma and and in Louisiana and all that stuff. So you've got Ken Lux that that Ken Mantell that's he's going to become a booker for world class championship wrestling for for the Von Erics. Uh he's going to form his own wrestling promotion called Wild West Wrestling that I really don't know a whole lot about but he is one of that outstanding group of young talent that Florida has in the early 70s of young guys that are just going to go on to become big names and big stars. And just a few of them off the top of my head, you've got Ken Lusk, you've got Dick Slater, you've got uh, Austin Idol, who is Dennis McCord, who is going to become Austin Idol. You've got Kevin Sullivan, you've got Mike Graham, you've got me, you've got my brother Rob is in there some, you've got Jimmy Golden who's in there some, uh, you've got Roy Lee Welch. You've got Jackie Welch, his brother. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And these guys are going to come become stars in all different territories all over the world and outside the United States, in Japan and Australia and every place else. I'm going to be in Australia in 73 with Dennis McCord, who is going to become Austin Idol. Uh, it's just a it's a great group of young guys that are all scratching and digging and want to become great stars, and they're in a super place to get it done because the whole concept of Eddie Graham's territory is based upon wrestling. He's one of the few places in the world in which wrestling is still wrestling. And you don't go into a ring to wrestle in Florida back in the 70s, in the early 70s, and and, and start throwing punches and expect to have bloody matches. It's just not going to happen. You're going to go in there and you're going to wrestle. You're going to do wrestling moves, and 90% of what you do in your match is going to be wrestling and it was a great place to be, a great thing to be a part of, and to have so much of of what goes on in that ring be based upon your actual ability to go out there and do some wrestling. The talk about Ken Mantell got me thinking, Ron. Ken Mantell, of course, would be the booker for world-class wrestling in Dallas during their most successful period financially when they really had the boom in the early 80s with the Von Erichs. And there are so many guys that you shared a locker room with early in your career who would become bookers. When you first break in, you have Tom Renesto, you have Leo Garibaldi, you have Louis Tillette. These guys would still be around at the end of the 70s, but there was a whole new crop of wrestlers 
that have become bookers. And if you look at the guys you were around, whether it was Ken Mantell or Gary Hart or Dusty Rhodes or Bill Watts, and I can keep going with this list, you were around them early in their career. You were in the locker room with them. And I'm just curious, were there guys that you were certain would one day be good bookers or even get a chance to be bookers and it didn't work out? And who were you surprised became a booker in the sense of, I can't believe this guy was hired as a booker somewhere. Uh, you know, like you say, there was a tremendous amount of talent there, and and a lot of them went on to to reach a level above just being a wrestler. And that booker is the first step. I mean, you got you're a wrestler, you're a booker, you're a promoter, uh, you're one of those three. And then, so in my case, I end up being all three of those. And so does a lot of other people there. Uh, my brother goes on to become a booker for WCW. Uh, he, he becomes a booker. Uh, uh, for Jarrett, for Jerry Jarrett out of the Memphis area and out of Nashville. Uh, there, Kevin Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan is going to become booker for, for WCW. And, uh, there are a lot of young guys there that you can't really tell who, where guys are going to go in their career. I don't think I would have ever imagined Ken Lusk, uh, being a booker. I, I knew he had great talent in the ring. I, I could see that his ability in the ring is going to take him places, but you have to have a different mindset to want to become a booker because that's a hard job. And there's a lot of pressure on you and you, you have to perform and the way you're tested and the way that, uh, that your performance is indicated is by how many people, how many asses are in those seats every night. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys don't have the ability to do that and to make that happen week after week. And some guys only get a chance to book one time in their life. They'll, they'll have one opportunity and they'll struggle and they won't do well. And their reputation precedes them and it also follows them. And if they've had bad turn as a booker, then they may never get a chance to book again. But there were a few. Ken, Ken Lusk was a surprise to me that when I heard he was booking for Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma, I was very impressed. Like, geez, I didn't really expect him that soon to get himself in that position. But there were quite a few guys in that, that initial group there that went on to do great things as far as bookers. And some of them went on to be promoters and, and uh, such as myself and, and my brother uh, had the opportunity to be a promoter as the time went on. And so there was a great group of young guys there, a tremendous group of, of guys that were just scratching and digging. And, and when you went out and watched those matches, you could see that these guys and, and pretty much all of them that I just named are going to have a great career in the sport. And uh, sure enough, they do. Uh, they, they really rock it. Well, Ron, as we return to Florida, your second month in the business, you have some new tag team partners, but they're not necessarily new to you. You know them quite well. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of tag matches. I'm working a whole lot with the Infernos, which is a great team. Uh, those guys, especially Rocky. Now, the elder of the two, Curtis is a younger guy. Rocky, his brother, is a veteran great worker, been around many, many territories. 
And just getting in the ring with Rocky Smith is a it's a it's a fabulous place to be because he is so good. And uh, so I have an opportunity to work with these infernos a lot. I had a lot of different partners. I mentioned some of them last month. Now, the two that really stick out this next month is I'm in a six-man tag with the two infernos and the super inferno that we just mentioned. Uh, and it's against my cousins, my relatives, some more of the Welches. It's uh, Jackie Welch, uh, who's about two years older than I am, and it's Roy Lee Welch, his brother, was about a year younger than I am. So we're right in that same time frame. They're Lester's boys, Lester Welch's sons. Uh, they've been trained quite a bit. They've been around wrestling all their lives. Uh, they have the skills and they have the knowledge. And their dad is right there watching a lot of what they do. And, and he's a great worker himself. So they're 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 good workers they're they're going to have some uh some good days in the future uh roy lee is going to end up in tennessee long before i go there in the knoxville area and working out of nashville with my brother and they're going to win a couple of national regional championship tag team championships and they're going to do pretty well together rob and roy lee going to do pretty darn good together uh, Jackie's going to stay in the business. He's going to end up promoting as one of the local promoters for the office in Florida and Tallahassee. They're going to build their own arena, a big building up there that holds probably uh, 3,500 people. And that is going to be Jackie's town in which he's going to handle the promoting. And he's going to live there. He will be the only wrestler in Florida that lives in Tallahassee. And he will run that building for not just wrestling events, but for other events that will be able to rent that building. And they'll do well. That building for the Florida Territory is going to make the company a lot of money. It's a great decision. And my dad is involved with Eddie in making that decision. My dad at this time is not an owner of Florida, but he's about to become an owner of Florida. And uh, he's going to work a deal with Lester. Lester owns a percentage of Florida. And Dad's going to trade him his percentage in Georgia for Lester's percentage of Florida. Then my dad's emphasis is going to uh, diminish in Georgia. And he's going to become kind of one of the head guys with uh, putting Florida uh, pushing Florida forward to becoming an even better territory than what it is in 1970 when I arrived there. Uh, one more guy I want to mention uh, that I wrestled in this second month is Rene Goulet. Rene Goulet is from Quebec. His name is his real name is Robert Bedard, and he's from Quebec, Canada. Uh, he's called the number one Frenchman. This guy is a tremendous worker, I, and, and I'm young here in this time frame, but I have a lot of matches with Goulet, and, and I really like working with him. Uh, he's, he's, in fact, he has a reputation around wrestling that he can take these young guys and, and give, give people great matches with them and train them very well. So, that's what he does for me. I start spending, I get married. I call it, I'm married to, to this gentleman here. I'm married to Goulet for, 
for just about the entire second, third, fourth month of my wrestling. I'm I'm wrestling him three or four nights a week, and in a lot of those matches, uh, he they have a finish. Louis is booking some. Louis Tillet's booking some, and he liked to have me wrestle Goulet for 45 minutes. We would start out with a 45 minute time limit match. We would be in these I'm gonna call them B towns, uh, Fort Myers, uh, O'Galley. Uh, Smaller towns that run when there's a bigger city running as well. And the, the the younger guys get sent to these smaller towns. And I happen to be on top most of the time, lucky enough to be in that position. And I'm working with a guy like Goulet, Rene. And these 45-minute time limit matches, uh, Louis didn't want to beat anybody. He would just say, you go through. So we were doing 45 minutes. Now I'm, I've been in the business less than six months, and I'm, I'm in the ring for 45 minutes at a time. And then he started taking it beyond that. You would The bell would ring at 45, and then I would come back and say, I'd like to have five more minutes. I think I can beat this guy. And uh, the crowd obviously loved it. They want to see the match as long as they can. So they would, they would, uh, you know, Goulet would need argue. He'd start to leave the ring, and then he would finally come back and he'd go, "Okay, I'm gonna give his punk five more minutes. I'm gonna beat him in this first five. I'm gonna beat him in this next or five minutes." Uh, lots of times we'd go through that. Now we've wrestled fifty minutes. We'd, and I would, when the matches bell rings again, I'm just about to beat him. I would say, "I just five more minutes. Give me another five minutes, and I'm sure I can beat you." And then Louis used to like to do the deal in that last five minutes. Now we're in the 50 to 55 minute range. Uh, he would beat me <laughs> right in the middle. I always hated it. I was like, geez, man, this is horrible. I'm out there saying, give me five more, give me five more. And he just, he's tanking me every time, every night. Uh, but it was a great opportunity for me because the guy was such a good worker and he just led me and he taught me so much at a young age that I was getting better faster than a lot of these other young guys that I have mentioned because they weren't on that main event. They were down those cards and working with people that weren't as good as Rene Goulet, but, uh, Goulet's, Goulet works uh, there in 1970, a little bit into 1971. He ends up going and working for Vern. He does great for Vern for many, many years. And uh, great talent, Rene Goulet, uh, Tarzan Tyler, Ken Lusk. Uh, these are guys that are really, really super and, uh, and kind of what made the sport great back in those days. Well, Ron, those are all great wrestlers that you named, but I'm looking here at the list of people you worked with in the second month, and it seems that you're conveniently leaving out a few people. Hey, well, yeah, I really don't know how to uh, get to these <laughs> last two. You know, it's a, for me, I remember when this happened and I got booked in these matches and I get there and I see that it's a mixed tag match and uh, I'd been in one with women before, but this time it's with midgets. I thought it was a joke. I was like, Louie, I was say, Louie, uh, you know, I'm the tallest guy here and you're going to put me <laughs> in the ring with the smallest guy here. I was like, what are you trying to do? And it was always a big laugh. Uh, and then the guys would like to go watch those matches 
and I like them too because a lot of those midgets are pretty darn good. And then they were bad boys. They they were trained by Lord Littlebrook. Lord Littlebrook was the king of midget wrestlers, trained most every great midget wrestler probably between 1960 and 1980. If you were trained uh, and you were trained by Lord Littlebrook, you're going to become a star as a midget. And I worked with a couple of midgets, one of them named Cowboy Bradley and the other named Bobo Johnson. And I would take those guys. I loved it. And I would talk to them and I'd say, I want to pick you up and throw you on a drop kick. And they would say, what are you talking about? And I'd say, <laughs> now I'm going to literally grab you by the back of the neck and by the, uh, by the, by your ass. And I'm going to, I'm going to get you up to the height of a regular wrestler. And I would throw them as a weapon against uh, whoever the other <laughs> regular size opponent over there on that other team. And I, that was great. Crowds would love that. I would just, I'd just grab the little midget and I would, Hey, I'd throw him into the little midget and I'd throw him into the, to the big wrestler. So we had fun. I had fun and I enjoyed it. I end up having great relationships with midgets, oddly enough, through my entire career. And I can remember spending three months in Australia with little Tokyo, little Japanese midget trained by little Brook that uh, stays in there three months in Australia with me and goes to the beach with me just about every day. He loves the surf. He loves the beach and he loves the sun. And we go beaches in Australia, different cities every day. And I mean, you talk about turning heads. You got me and a midget, a little Japanese midget side by side, walking in wrestling tights down a beach. It's it is crazy about how many people would just jump on that and start just going crazy about, look at these guys. So it was, it was a little bit strange, but I kind of liked the midget matches. I got to where I was used to it. And, you know, I, and it gave, uh, I think it gave Louie and some guys like that real thrill. They went out to watch it and they would laugh. And, you know, I, I think they probably liked uh, my ideas of, of using the little midgets as battering rams or whatever you want to call it. But uh, I enjoyed those little, those little matches with the midgets. Most midget matches, especially in that era, people think of and they think of comedy spots. The midget biting the referee's ass, them running around chasing each other. Was this the first time in your career, because this is pretty early on, where you encountered, for lack of a better term, comedy spots during a match? Yeah. Yes, it was. And, and I mean, uh, I'd just been to, this was my second territory. So I've been in Georgia. Uh, gosh, man, Georgia was pretty much like Florida. I mean, it was a wrestling territory, and there wasn't much of that play stuff. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of that laughing. And <clears throat> My dad just he he just hated it. He 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 just despised that. I mean, it it was absolute opposite of what he wanted to see and imagine, what he thought was really good. Uh so he was he was he was horrible about it. He would watch some of that stuff and he would just I would hear him get on guys in the dressing room about, hey, you know, this ain't a joke out here or whatever. So Having midgets, uh, you had to have a little different match. Obviously, uh, you uh, how's a big guy like me going to look uh, dealing with a little midget? I mean, it's pretty much a joke anyway. There's some humor in just seeing the two of you walk to the ring, 
You know, the crowd's kind of laughing right then, you know. Uh, wow, look at this group. So it was, it was a little strange. Uh, and it's not something that I really liked. I always wanted to have great matches, and I always wanted the fans after the match, after my match, to to say, "Geez, that guy's really for real." And uh, and I I wanted that to be that had to be part of my my be, my being and what I presented out there in the ring. And I get that from my dad and my granddad and from all of those years of watching those guys do what they did and what they gave uh, to, 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 make, to make matches just uh, fab- fabulous. Uh, I saw the picture the other day on Facebook uh, somebody put on there with uh, Mario Galento and my dad in, in, in Atlanta in 1965 a shot of Rocky Marciano pulling Glento off of dad and dad's all bloody. And I mean, it's like, when I look at those pictures, I, I just, it brings me back uh, to how much some of those guys like my granddad and my father gave that they just don't do anymore. They'll never do again. They will never give their heads and their hearts and their bodies and their soul to, to the sport. Uh, like they did back in those days. That's the long and the short of it in regards to your second month in the business, but we'll return with your questions right after this short word about the next Super Studcast. In Super Studcast number four, which is available Sunday, April 15th, the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller has decided to ride in a totally new direction. For the first time ever, Ron will have a guest live for the entire two hours. This guest is a famous wrestler, booker, and promoter of wrestling talent. He's discovered and handled an assembly of wrestlers that few others in the sport can claim. The following unbelievable list is some of the Hall of Fame talent he mentored while at WCW and WWE. While at WCW in the 1990s, Steve Austin would go on to be Stone Cold, Cactus Jack of Mick Foley and Mankind fame, Scary Sid Vicious, Ravishing Rick Rude, Arn Anderson of the Four Horsemen, and Booker T of Harlem Heat. He would later make his mark in WWE with their recent Hall of Fame inductee, Jeff Jarrett. He's recognized worldwide as Colonel Rob Parker for WCW and Tennessee Lee for WWE. He's also a member of the oldest and largest wrestling family on the planet. I'm sure that everyone is aware by now that Super Studcast number four will feature the stud's hugely successful brother, Robert Fuller Welch. This famous brother tag team has held just about every tag team championship in the southern USA, and most of the individual championships recognized by the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. They've also created and developed some of the most successful NWA territories, like Southeastern Championship Wrestling's Southern Division and the hugely popular Continental Championship Wrestling. Wrestling success has followed their family since 1920, and they're still making their mark today. Don't miss this opportunity to hear not one, but two of the greatest storytellers in wrestling history. There it is, the next Super Studcast, Super Studcast number four, on Sunday, April 15th, for the first time ever, the Fuller Brothers together for two hours. I I don't know what to uh, expect here, I don't know what to anticipate, but a lot of people are talking about this, Ron. I don't know what to expect either, to be honest with you. you know, I mean, Rob and I, uh, I mean, the, the stories are going to be outrageous. There's no doubt about that. 
you know, I'm just hoping that we can keep this thing uh, brotherly. You know, I mean, Rob and I, Rob and I, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I never know what that, what's going to happen when Rob and I get together. And, and I guess that's part of going to be part of the fun of it. Uh, uh, and I just, I'm great. Uh, he's never done a podcast. He's never been on a program before like this. And, uh, and I'm really thankful to him. I've been talking to him about it. I've been wanting to do this. And uh, people have just been asking for it since day one. And the very first Super Stud cast, they, they, you know, that was that was a talk to Rob or whoever it is or Jimmy or whatever. So, you know, this is the first time we've done a Super Stud cast that's going to be like this in which we we are going to do live with a person for the entire two hours. And I think it will be absolutely remarkable people will listen to some of these stories rob has great storyteller he's just as good a storyteller as i am and he has a lot of experiences and they're with wcw people and wwe people i mean rob's career has spanned a lot bigger distance than than mine i was basically involved in hockey after 1988 and got out of wrestling and, and just now started getting back involved. But Rob's been there for all that time frame and wrestling in different places. Uh, so it's going to be a very interesting program. I'm really looking forward to it. As you said, let's just hope it remains brotherly on this next super stud cast. But before we get there, we'll have a little bit more about this at the end of the program. We talked about your second month in Florida. We talked about all of the guys that you worked with. Like you did last week, Ron, I'm, I'm curious. Do you know how many matches exactly you work? You, do you have an idea of exactly what you did during the second month? Yeah, I do. And that and that's great. There again, it goes back to this record that I, that I have uh, that, that, that people, have, that a couple of guys put together for me, and, and I'm able to break down everything. I basically, in the second month, I travel 7,400 miles in car. Uh, that's a pretty decent amount of miles. We're getting up there now. I mean, yeah. you're in a car a heck of a lot. I fly six hours in this second month, uh, private plane, basically Nassau, Tampa, Nassau, Tampa, Nassau. Uh, I've wrestled in uh, 12 different cities in that month. Uh, I wrestled 26 times in the 30 day period of time. Now I'm in that, that realm of being a pretty much full-time wrestler. I get him back basically one day a week off and that's a pretty good schedule, pretty wicked schedule. Uh, in Florida, the average trip, I was looking at the trips and even in the cities, the average trip was 300 miles every day. So if you left the office, say at four o'clock in the afternoon, you meet with somebody else and you're going to carpool or whatever, you're going to leave around four o'clock in the afternoon on average, and you ain't going to get back until one or two o'clock in the morning. The worst day of the week, every week is Wednesday. It's television day. So you go, you're going to get up in the morning about 10 o'clock. You're going to go to TV. You're going to be at television from 11 o'clock, basically, till 2 o'clock in the afternoon, three-hour time span. And then you're going to go grab yourself a little food. Yeah, you've got to drive to Miami. It's four-hour drive one way. And uh, so you're going to leave around 3 o'clock to get to Miami by 7 you're going to 
be out of there by 11, and you're going to be back home at 3 o'clock in the morning. So your day on Wednesday is going to start about 10 o'clock in the morning, and you're not going to get home until 3 o'clock in the morning the next day. It's uh, brutal. Brutal. It's brutal. That's exactly what it is. It's brutal. The entire schedule is pretty brutal. That 7,000-plus miles a week, I mean a month, is a pretty good load. That's almost 2,000 miles a week. You're in a car. It's a it's a real struggle uh, to to be a wrestler back in that day and time. And to be quite honest with you, it was not big money back in those days. Florida was doing well, but they weren't doing nearly what's going to happen in the next couple of years there. That Florida territory is going to explode. It's going to get big time. But right now, you're making all these trips, and you're not making a whole lot of money. Uh, and then because I'm not on main events and I'm not on a main event in a big city, sure enough. So I'm not getting much money. I'm probably making, I'm going to, I'm going to just estimate, I'm probably only making 300, three, $400 a week, uh, back in those days. And, uh, you had to pay for your gas and you had to buy your food. And sometimes in uh, Nassau, you'd have to stay over. You'd have to pay for a room. Uh, it can be expensive to operate and expensive to get out there and do what you need to do. But uh, it's the way things were back in those times, back in this, the way it was. You're making about 300 to $400 a week. How much is Rob making in Tennessee? Rob's kicking ass in Tennessee. <laughs> and uh, and he's, not, he's not holding back and, and, and bragging about it either. <laughs> You know, he's he's like, what'd you make last week? You know, I said, well, 400, man. And God, I made 900. You know, like, geez, man. So, but, but to, when I look back at it, Brian, I really see where I benefited. I feel like more by being in Florida than I would have had I gone to Tennessee where Rob was. Uh, there's a great deal of difference in the way those two territories are run. You've got that Florida territory that's run off wrestling. It's, it's basic. It's, it's solid. And then you've got that wild atmosphere in, in Tennessee when you go up there where it's, it's blood every night and this crazy stuff. And, uh, I just, and, and, uh, and, uh, we're going to get into something here in a few minutes that is going to change everything basically, uh, so far as what opportunity I'm going to have in Florida that no one else in the country has. And, and that's, that's the, that's the training that I'm about to start to get at some point here. And I think one of the things on the next super stud cast on April 15th that we need to ask Robert is from his perspective, what did he think going from Georgia to Tennessee, as opposed to you going from Georgia to Florida? There's so many times he's come up here on the show. So this may be a great opportunity to answer some of those questions that have built up after all these weeks, but hear them from Robert's perspective. So once again, the next super stud cast, April 15th, go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. But with that, let's go to some questions from the listeners, Ron. And I guess it makes sense. Let's stay in Florida for this first one. It's from John Fetzik Jr. in Boca Raton, Florida. All right. Can you talk sometime about Jerry Stubbs? I know he worked for you in the 70s and 80s. His body of work is exceptional and doesn't get talked about much. Also, is it true he gave Kurt Hennig the name Mr. Perfect? Jace, good question. 
Yeah, I, I love to talk about Jerry Stubbs. Jerry Stubbs is a tremendous talent. Uh, Jerry Stubbs started working for me in Knoxville in 1978. He had a cousin named Mike Stallings, who could have been a great worker himself. And uh, I don't know why Mike got out of the business, but they both came and started wrestling for me in 1978 in Knoxville. They would drive from Atlanta to Knoxville, wrestle on TV, um, Maybe I'd give them a shot that night in a spot show somewhere, usually on Saturday nights. You were either in Marstown, Tennessee or Harlan, Kentucky. And uh, so they 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 really were great workers and they had a great uh, they had great uh, feel for wrestling and and their respect for the business was wonderful. Uh, super talented young guys. And Jerry's going to go to be on to be a great worker. The guy's exactly right here. He is an exceptional talent, and uh, his body of work proves it. Uh, he then comes uh, when I get opened in Pensacola and Southeastern becomes just a Southern division, and Northern division is sold to Jim Barnett and uh, Fred Ward. Uh, then Jerry's going to come and move into Pensacola in about 1981 and become a fixture there for many years. He's basically never going to leave until probably 87, 88. He's going to spend a little time in, in Mid-South working with Watts. But uh, Jerry has, to answer his Kurt Inning question here, uh, yes, uh, and I talked to Jerry about this before. Jerry in 1983 was in Japan with Kurt Henning and Nelson Royal, uh, probably a great group of guys uh, to be over there in Japan with. And he said during that time that Kurt was there and Kurt was part of that deal. Kurt was about to go leave Japan and go back to work for Vince. WWE Vince is just getting cranked up. And he was asking Jerry, what would be a good gimmick for me? What, what would work for me? And, and Jerry recommended to him, he says, you know, I've been thinking about calling myself Mr. Perfect. And he goes, uh, you know, what about you just do that? Why don't you call yourself Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning? And so Kurt takes that back to WWE, and he makes some bread with it. Uh, he does very well. Kurt is a tremendous worker. Gosh, a fabulous worker, actually, and a great guy. And hopefully I may get Rob, since we talked a little bit about this next Super Stud cast. Rob has some fabulous stories about Kurt Henning, where Kurt had a little thing that he would snip guys' eyebrows off. When they would go to sleep on the airplane, he would just reach over there and cut their eyebrows off. <laughs> he would put lipstick on them and he would do crazy things. I mean, Kurt had a great sense of humor. And, uh, you know, I maybe have Rob go into a little bit of that, but Rob's got some tremendous stories about Kurt Henning and, and how he, how he really loved to rib guys. He was an old time wrestler. Wrestlers loved to rib each other and they would do anything to get something on you and to, to make you look foolish or whatever it was. It was a big thing. So Kurt's fabulous talent goes on to become a huge star. And Jerry becomes the Jerry in 1984 hits the gym and puts his changes, his body just 
magnificently within a six month period of time. He looks like a totally different person. And Bob Armstrong tells him one time, Jerry and I talked about this before. Bob says to him, you know, Jerry, you're looking like Mr. Olympia, you know, because back in the weight, you know, back in the bodybuilding days, that was the Mr. Olympia was the ultimate. And, uh, you know, Bob says, you look like Mr. Olympia. And Jerry says, I love that. I'm going to wear a mask and call myself Mr. Olympia. And so Jerry starts doing that about 1984 and just changes his whole persona and changes his, his, his personality. Everything changes about Jerry. And Jerry becomes a star, a huge star as Mr. Olympia. He goes to Mid-South. But it does great business for Watts in Mid-South uh, in 1984 and still lives in Pensacola. Even when he's in there working for Watts, his family's still in Pensacola. And uh, Jerry's a personal friend of mine to this very day. I love Jerry Stubbs. He's a great guy. And he is, as this gentleman says, he is really, uh, his body of work is exceptional. There's no doubt about it. Did you ever have an opportunity to see any of his work in Mid-South as Mr. Olympia? I never saw any of his matches from over there or any of his tapes from over there, but he did the Mr. Olympia deal for me right before he went there, and I knew he was going to do well because he really, his, his, his act was together. He had been in the business long enough that he was a veteran at that point. He really knew how to get himself over, had a fabulous body, uh, and I knew he was going to do very well for Bill. And uh, Bill Watts and I, great friends, have been for many, many years. And uh, I think Bill might have called me and said, who you got, you might can send me. And and I think uh, I probably said, uh, you know, I've got Jerry Stubbs here, and he's looking great. He's, he's doing the deal, wearing a mask, call himself Mr. Olympia. He said, send him to me. And uh I think uh, Bill has told me many times, uh, you know, how much he appreciated it afterward. Uh, we exchanged a lot of talent, Bill and I, because we were side by side as far as territories went. And our televisions crossed over one another in certain markets. And we utilized that to help ourselves, help each other. Uh, we, we really worked well together. We have another question here this week from Todd Flynn in, uh, and I hope I pronounced this correctly. Siverville or Seaverville, Tennessee? Do you know Sevierville. the Severville. I think that's Severville, probably. That's a little town that's just right there between Knoxville and Gatlinburg. A little town, but a big complicated name. But Todd's question is this. In wrestling, what does the term hooker represent? And were you ever considered to be a hooker? Oh, man, good question. Hooker is... Um, Hooker, another word for hooker is shooter. Uh, uh, some people call, they call it catch wrestling. You know, uh, it, it's real. I mean, it, it's it's when you're actually learning how to hurt people and, and learning how to beat people. And and there, there's there's no there's no work to this. I mean, it, it's a shoot. And, uh, and being a hooker, you want to... Not everybody had that reputation uh, because not everybody had that ability. And you had to really want it to be a hooker. You you had to you had to have a great mind frame. And gosh, this is this question is absolutely perfect because 
I wanted to talk here at the end of the program about the snake pit. Gosh, and and the, there I am. I, I'm I'm in 1970. I'm 22 years old. I'm wrestling in a territory that has the most unique setup in it that any place I've ever seen or ever heard of is there down there at the old sportatorium where they do, do the TV on North Albany there in, in Tampa, downtown Tampa. They have a ring up all the time, and there are a few guys in there that go in there and shoot every morning. And I and and but to become a hooker, to become a shooter, to learn how to hurt people, to learn how to make things uh, terrible for your opponent if you need to, how to take care of yourself. So I'm going to get this opportunity. I'm two months in now. We're talking two months, and, and I wanted to bring it up here at the end of the show, and this is a perfect question, is because – Next week, the next studcast, I want to open the door to the snake pit. And I don't know if uh, I've, I've told some snake pit stories. Uh, I love this where we are here right now, Brian, because we're about to get into the meat of my career. We're about to get into those things that affected me and changed me and made me the wrestler I'm going to be for the rest of my life and going to to put me in a, in a different, different range and a different mode than other wrestlers in a way I'm going to join into that group that goes to the snake pit. I'm going to go down there every morning and sweat in that horribly hot building there with no air conditioning and, uh, do things and commit your body to pain that you just can't imagine unless you go through it in order to learn everything that that you need to be to be able to go there and represent yourself and represent your sport and have the great the knowledge and the ability to do what you need to do in any circumstance to protect yourself and to protect your business and and uh being a hooker is is a is a great thing uh not a lot of guys want to be a hooker not a lot of guys care about it that's why so few people came down to that snake pit and the snake pit is a it's a demonizing place it is a it's it, it's it's nothing like it ever in wrestling that i've ever heard of any place else in which Eddie Graham's going to come in there. Uh, Don Curtis is going to come in there. Uh, Gordon Nelson out of England is going to come in there. There's going to be things happen in that building that no one has ever seen in the history of the sport before. And I was a part of it, got to see it, got to be there, saw the first sugar hole, saw all of those things. And it's just I can't wait to tell these stories, the, the these the snake pit stories. And next Sludcast, we're going to open the door to the snake pit. And uh, during that course of the snake pit, I don't know, may take two shows. It might take three shows. I don't really know how many shows this may take. But I can guarantee wrestling fans, we've had 38 episodes here. I have not gotten to anything like what's going to happen in number 39. The snake pit is a, it's an entity into itself. Ron, before we 
wrap up the show this week. Of course, we now have to name a winner, which is the first time I have properly said that at the end of the program. So who do you pick? Do you pick the question from John Fetzik about Jerry Stubbs? Or do you pick Todd Flynn's question about wrestling hookers? I, I'm thinking I'm going to take the Todd Flynn. I think I'm going to take Todd Flynn's question about uh, the hooker. And, and part of it, the great question about Jerry Stubbs, no doubt about that. But at the same time, this hooker question just kind of led into to something I really wanted to get at the end of the program, the snake pit and what's going to begin next week as far as Studcast is concerned. The Studcast is going to jump up another level. If you like what's been going on here for 38 episodes, you really need to listen to next week's because it's going to be something that you'll never hear. You'll never hear these stories from any place else. It's a unique and uh, fascinating and horrifying place to be is in that building called a snake pit. Next week, we open the door to the snake pit. But this week, as we wrap things up, here's how you can stay in touch with the show. Of course, you can follow the Tennessee Stud on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can also follow the Tennessee Stud on Instagram once again at Ron Fuller Welch. You can like him on Facebook. Look for Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, the official Facebook page for the Tennessee Stud. You can also visit TNStud.com and take a ride through the Tennessee Stud's fantastic website. And don't forget to check out the highly acclaimed monthly Super Studcast as well as the rest of the story. But of course, we have the awesome Andre the Giant, the rowdy Ron Wright, and the crazy Caribbean Chaos Super Studcast, all available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99 a month, and you get so much additional content. Check it out. Once again, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. The next Super Studcast will be on Sunday, April 15th, when the Tennessee Stud welcomes his brother live to the Super Studcast. Once again, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 